All right, this is, I don't even know what part we're on anymore. I can tell you. I can tell you in just a second. We are on, give me a second, I have to open the app. We are on part 74 in our study on law and gospel. This will be see part 74 for that this is part like 55 for the ones we've numbered and most of the ones that are part that say part 55 part 1 part 2 all the way up to part 55 most of those have occurred here inside the church uh, the others have occur- occurred on the podcast so like 74 total so if you haven't listened to all of them you, you know, hopefully you will at some point so that everyone's on the same page. But for what we've done here, we've been working through a book entitled God's No and God's Yes. And what thesis are we on as of today? Thesis number 11. Very good. Thesis number 11. We're not going to go back and review anything from thesis number 10. Because if we do, well, you know what happens, right? So we're in thesis number 11. So are you ready? Thinking caps on? Okay, that's, that doesn't sound too confident, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to believe that everyone's ready to go. All right, here we go. Thesis number 11. For those who have the thesis, what does thesis number 11 say? All right, the word of God is not rightly divided when we limit who we preach the gospel to. The way it's written in the book is this. The word of God is not rightly divided when... There is a disposition to offer the comfort of the gospel only to those who have been made contract by the law, not from fear of wrath and punishment of God, but from the love of God. So let's try to think what they're trying to say here. Thesis number 11. Here we go. The word of God is not rightly divided when there is a disposition to offer the comfort of the gospel only to those who have been made contract by the law, not from fear of the wrath and punishment of God, but from the love of God. Now, before we start breaking this down, let us just make sure we remember this. The whole point of this study is to try to prevent what from happening? If anyone remembers. Say it. Yes, not merging or confusing law and gospel, but understanding the proper distinction between them, because if we look at the evangelical world at large, the constant merging and mixing of law and gospel, almost treating them, sometimes what you think is gospel is actually law, and sometimes what is law is actually gospel. It's this really mixed up and confused thing. And this distinction between law and gospel is not a new thing, is it? No. And, and we know these are biblical concepts, yes? Because in the Bible, do we read about law? Yes. Do we read about gospel? Yes. And what are our simple definitions for law and gospel that we've now worked on for well over 70-something hours? Law is basically any scripture that does what? Tells you to do something or not to do something. Any scripture that says do this, don't do this, that is law. Everybody understand that? And any passage that speaks of what God has done for us is gospel. And what are some ways in which law and gospel get merged or confused? Just so that we have everyone somewhat on the same page. 
is when people look to law passages to find assurance or to prove salvation because they're using the law for something it was never intended to do. The law was never intended to prove salvation. The law was intended to do what? To show us our need for salvation and condemn because can anyone keep the law? Can anyone keep the law? Okay. Can lost people keep the law? Can save people? Ooh, now see, you realize that answer would not be accepted in almost any church in America. You do realize that, right? Okay? But we, you cannot keep the law. I, I, every Christian who claims it, what, what is the one thing I know about every Christian who claims it? That they can't. They're lying, which is a sin, meaning that they don't keep the law. You don't keep the law, because to keep the law, you have to keep it in what way? Everybody remember our little formula that comes from actually the London Baptist Confession of Faith? This is nothing new. It, the fact that the uh, modern church has so abandoned church history is part of the problem and why we have the issues today. But let's go through this. To keep the law requires you keep it perfectly, personally, Exact. Entire. She, she's trying to go with the last one. Okay. Personal. Exact. Entire. And perpetual. All right. And give me what are the three that I always point out to demonstrate that no one keeps the law? Love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. And be holy as God is holy. No one has ever accomplished that. But, so now, here's the, here's the theological test. If you get this right, you get a million dollars. Okay? Okay? Well, no one's going to get it right. No, okay, no, no, no. Someone's going to get it right, and then they're going to be like, where's my million dollars? Okay, so yeah. I made one of those kind of bets with Kate, and to this day, she's still asking for the money. And I'm like, why did I ever make that? It wasn't real. Okay, but all right. Here we go. Everybody ready? Christians cannot keep the law in what we do and in our actions. But how do we keep the law? In Christ, we all keep the law. So in one sense, we do keep the law. Based on what? In Christ, because what is it? Remember, what's the word? Imputed to us means accredited to our account. What is accredited to our account? The perfect obedience of Christ. So in one sense, I can say, I do keep the law, but in practice... I don't keep the law. We have to make sure we understand that distinction, right? So if someone comes to you with a test and says, if you're a Christian, you will do this, 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 and this, what can you say? I've done it all perfectly. So back off, right? And how have you done it all perfectly? Because Christ kept the law perfectly. So just remember, when we say Christ came to die That's not the full story. He came to obey the law perfectly, personally, exactly, entirely, perpetually, and to die. He died to pay for our guilt, and he obeyed the law so that could be accredited to my account. Does that make sense? So therefore, when I stand before God, I don't stand before God just as someone whose sins have been forgiven, I stand before God as someone who is holy, righteous, perfect, and obedient. Right? That, that's the whole idea of imputation. I, 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 
And, and most Christians today get put forth what kind of concept? Not the imputed idea, but what concept? Infused righteousness, which is straight up Roman Catholicism, right? And that's the, that's, that's the whole reason the Protestant Reformation took place, right? When people argue about the Protestant Reformation, they get so caught up on... I, sometimes I don't even know if they know what it is. But the issue was, how is a sinner made righteous before a holy God? And what's the answer? Based off an imputed righteousness that comes by... There's a word that you're missing. Alone. There we go. Someone remembers the Protestant Reformation. Okay, good, all right? Alone. That was the key word, right? A Catholic would say, yeah, you're made, you're made right before God by, by faith. But they would not say alone. Does that make sense? Okay. We've got to make sure we understand that. All right. So there's a quick reminder of everything. Now, let's just dig into this. It's, well, who knows where it's going to go, but we'll... Every paragraph usually leads us in a different direction, all right? So the main thing they want us to understand in this thesis is that there is, and remember, they make a big deal out of this, and the, the issue constantly in the book that's brought up is when should you present the gospel to someone, and when should you present the law to someone? And sometimes there's a lot of debate on this, all right? But here's what we do know, and, and, I, and sometimes it bothers me the way they want to break this down, but it leads to other discussions, so that's why I'm following it instead of skipping it. So let's make sure we understand this. In reality, everyone needs what? Law and gospel. Everyone needs law and gospel, right? Why does someone need the law before they can be saved? Because that shows you what you're, be, you're being saved from. Right? Jesus didn't come to save you from a life of no purpose or no meaning or because you don't have a friend or because you're having a bad day. Right? But a lot of times we sell salvation like that. That's not what Jesus came to save you from, right? He didn't come to save you from a bad day. He didn't come to save you from depression or discouragement. He came to save you from the wrath of God. Right? He came to save you. Remember, you're, what, our, you're, what is our problem? Our problem is God is upset with us because of our sin. And he came to save us from that. Right? Now, the only way for people to have a correct understanding of what they're being saved from is they need to understand the law. And the law is, this passage says, do this, do this, do this, do this. Do this. A good example. What's a good New Testament example of law? Do what? Okay. Well, First John, definitely a lot of law there. But the, probably our most famous one is the Sermon on the Mount. And everyone preaches the Sermon on the Mount like, do this, do this, do this, when the Sermon on the Mount is really telling you what? You, f- you will never do this, right? And once you realize you'll never do it, then what do you need? You need an answer. What's my hope and what's the hope? The gospel. So everyone needs the law. Everyone needs the gospel. So we, sometimes they're like, well, this person needs gospel and this person needs law. I do understand. When, when would you say someone doesn't need law? When would, you, when would be a good example when someone doesn't need the law? When you can see their guilt, their shame, and their brokenness. They don't need more law. They need gospel. All right? And when does someone not need the gospel? When they think they're okay or they don't believe that they're in sin or they believe, then they, they need all 
law. So there are those d- distinctions, but ultimately everyone will need both at some point in time. But you have to have the spiritual wisdom to know. They, they really try to break this down. Let's just see how they handle it. Here we go. Since the fall, so since the fall, law has but a single function. All right, so they said ever since the fall, the law has how many functions according to them? One. One function. Right? Most Christians don't believe it has one function. All right, here we go. It's to lead men to the knowledge of their sins. Are you ready for this? It has no power to renew them. It has no power to renew them. Now, does, does, do, do you really, now you've got to really think about that. Because in a large portion of your Christian life, you probably have been basically given the idea that the law can renew. Because we often sell the law as the solution to everything, right? If someone is having a problem, if someone is struggling, we tend to give them what? What kind of passages do we tend to give people? To-do passages, right? Isn't that the go-to answer? Right? Someone comes to me and they're having a problem. Well, the Bible says, do this, 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 do this. And the person leaves saying, I'm going to do this and I'm going to try harder and I'm going to try harder. And guess what they will find? Failure, 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 failure. So then that leads people to a couple of options. What are your options when you constantly keep experiencing this failure? You have a couple of options. What are your options? Well, one, you start convincing yourself you're doing better than you are, which leads to self-righteousness. Then you clean up the outside of the cup, but the inside of the cup is a mess. So you walk around condemning others, self-righteous, pointing the finger at everyone else to make yourself feel better. You point at everyone else's sins, thinking your sins are okay. That's, and that's what happens in a lot of, of Christianity, right? Kind of the pharisaical mindset. Hey, look at me. I'm, I think, goodness, I'm not like the teenagers, aren't you guys, Right? Okay, well, none, nobody else is grateful that you're not like the teenager. Okay, right? Okay. And the teenager's like, I'm glad I'm not like those old people, right? Okay, and I'm like, I'm glad I'm not like the, none, none of them, okay? Right? But that's what happens, because you've got to convince yourself that you're doing it. And, you're, and, you, and, we, and the best way to do that is to point to what? What's the best way to convince you're doing great? Focus on everyone else's sins. Right? I focus on everyone else's sins, I feel pretty good about myself. And Christians love to talk about everyone else's sins, right? Especially if we can find those really heinous sins that are happening in the world. That makes us feel really good because we know we can be better than them. Correct? All right. So there's option number one. What's option number two? Okay. Well, you believe you can lose your salvation, right? That that's pretty discouraging and depressing. So you're in a never cycle of losing it. All right. What's another possible way of handling it? Well, yeah, we'll use the, the term terminology for 2023 deconstruction. You end up on TikTok making videos about how you're deconstructing your faith and how you used to go to church and you don't go anymore. And part of the reason you don't go anymore is because you determined it doesn't it doesn't work. But we tend to go to the law. But what is the law? One single single function. What is the one single function of the law? 
To lead men to the knowledge of their sins. It has what? No power to renew them. That power is vested solely in what? The gospel. Only faith works by love. We do not become spiritually active by love, by sorrow over our sins. Now, they're saying that you don't become spiritually active because you're so sad about your sin. What makes you spiritually active is your love that flows from what the gospel and what God has done for you. Now, this has profound impact on how you live your Christian life. Now, if, if for those raised in a Christian home, some of them, guess what they would say, what, what, is the mo- what, what would they feel like is the motivating factor for them to live a Christian life? Do you think they would say law or gospel? Law. And in most churches, what's the motivating factor to get you to live the Christian life? Law. But laws to create what? Sorrow over sin. The gospel is to produce a love for God. We, I think sometimes we've gotten this way wrong. Don't, don't you? I mean, I don't know. I've gotten it wrong a million times. Have you gotten it wrong a million times? Right? A lot of preachers get it wrong. Right? Because we think the way to motivate is to do what? Do this! Right? Kind of a more threatening kind of sermon. What's your problem? You're probably not even saved. Yes? We've all been there, right? We've all been there. Our, our, our first thought is to immediately challenge someone's salvation, to question their salvation, threaten them with punishment, threaten them with, with whatever. And we're not so quick to bring the gospel because we almost feel like offering the gospel is, is what? What do we sometimes feel like offering the gospel to someone is? Letting them off the hook. True? But what, well, according to this, what can the law not do? Cannot renew and does not activate. It does not, does not make us spiritually active. Law does not make us spiritually active or does not renew. Now, it may make us active. Please note, there's a difference between active and spiritually active. Correct? You can be active, but you're active in the flesh, trying to please, trying to, trying to follow rules, trying to do the right thing, trying to either please parent or please this or stay out of trouble for this. That's activity, but it's not what kind of activity? Spiritual activity. It's fleshly activity. Does that make sense? Yes? On the contrary, while still ignorant of the fact that God has become our reconciled God and Father through Christ, we hate him. An unconverted person who claims that he loves God is stating an untruth and is guilty of a miserable piece of hypocrisy, though he may not be conscious of it. He is, he is setting up a claim that's, you know, by all means false, because only faith in the gospel regenerates a person. Accordingly, a person cannot love God while he is still without faith. 
to demand of a poor sinner that he must, uh, from love of God, be alarmed on account of his sins and feel sorry for them is perversion of law and gospel. In other words, you can't try to get a lost person to do what? To love God. And if you try to get a lost person to claim to love God, it's a, it's a form of hypocrisy and it's a lie because they cannot love God apart from faith in Christ. Because what produces the love, love for God? The gospel, not the law. But a lot of times we try to demand that someone, we, sometimes we try to place a demand on someone who may not even be regenerate that they're supposed to love God, love everything about God, when in reality they shouldn't and they can't. Because what produces that love? Gospel, not law. So I, I, think, there's, I think there's a lot to that. There's a lot more I want to say about that, but yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see where he goes and maybe we'll come back to that. So here we go. Here is the biblical doctrine. Now they're going to try to define the biblical doctrine, and this is kind of a long paragraph and maybe all that we, we cover this morning, but I think it's important, all right? Here is the biblical doctrine. The sinner is to come to Jesus just as he is, even when he has to acknowledge that there is nothing but hatred for God in his heart. And he knows of no refuge to which he may flee for salvation. That's a long sentence, but let's think this through, all right? Because once again, most churches are going to disagree with this sentence. All right? So let's think this through. All right? Thinking caps on. Everybody ready? This, uh, so I'm going to break this down almost like piece by piece, and, and you can tell me where you, if you have questions or if you have a problem with this. All right, here we go. The sinner is to come to Jesus just as he is, even when he has to acknowledge that there is nothing but hatred of God in his heart, and he knows of no refuge to which he may flee for salvation. Now the focus here is that the sinner comes to Christ in what way? Just as he is. Now what, what is popular in the evangelical world that almost destroys that concept? Oh, the, we're back to the repentance argument. Yes? We're back to the never-ending repentance argument. It's a major part of the evangelical world. And, and we can really see a major turning point. Where, where was that major turning point in the evangelical world? Does everybody remember when that major turning point was in the evangelical world? When a certain book was published... The gospel according to Jesus. And what does MacArthur make a big deal about? Before Coming to Christ involves what concept? Starts with an R. Someone said it. Repentance. You must repent. Now, it all depends on how we understand repentance, right? Okay. There are two major ways of understanding repentance. What are the two major ways within the Christian world of understanding repentance? And it's just, I just want you to realize, what drives me crazy about Christianity is literally there's no agreement on anything. Okay, we don't agree on baptism, Lord's Supper. We don't agree on anything within Christianity. But we don't even agree on the meaning of the word repentance. Isn't that crazy? We can't even agree on the meaning of a word? 
right? I mean, I, it's just maddening to me. Okay, but all right. So what are the two views of repentance? Everyone should know these. All right, first one is that repentance is a change of mind. Now, some people will try to play a little game here, say it's a change of mind that leads to a change of action, all right? But it's primarily a change of mind, meaning that to repent means that you do what? You simply are changing your mind about, okay, I believe Jesus died for me. I believe I'm a sinner. I believe he can save me. I believe in imputed right. You're just changing your mind about all of that, right? You may change your mind, but what may not change? Actions may not change in any meaningful, significant way. And other people will immediately go, oh, perish the thought. Others say repentance is what? A change of action. How is typically, typically in the Christian church, repentance is described something like this, right? You've probably heard it this way, right? You're going this way. You repent. You stop and you go this way and you leave that behind. That sounds really good. That preaches good, right? That preaches a good sermon, right? I, I, I've preached it that way, right? That preaches really good. Now, the problem is, sinner comes up to me, right? We'll just say teenagers, right? Right? So the teenagers come up to me and they're like, look, I'm committing this sin and this sin and this sin and, and I want to be saved. Well, okay, they recognize their sin, so they don't really need the law, right? They realize how messed up they are, right? So that's good. So I just need to present now the gospel, but if I present the gospel to them, now some will say, but wait, 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 wait. I got to make sure that they know they have to do what before they come to Jesus? They have to repent. Now, I, by all means, do I believe the Bible teaches repentance? Yes. The issue is how we understand and define it. Because what some would say, what do I have to tell these teenagers? Now, typically, it's really weird how it's preached, right? You must repent. You must turn from your sin. But really, what they kind of say is they have to be supposedly willing to turn from their sin, which I don't really know what that means, right? You've got to be willing to turn from your sin. And then when you turn from your sin, then you can come to Jesus. But they don't really demand that you actually stop before, but you've got to be willing to stop. So if you don't stop very soon after becoming a Christian, then it proves that you were never saved because your repentance wasn't genuine. I'll give you an example. If you go to our series on the Sermon on the Mount, where I'm reviewing sermons from a church in uh, Council, Bluff, uh, Council Bluffs, Iowa, guess what he believes is proof that your repentance is genuine? Your obedience to the Sermon on the Mount. You don't obey on the Sermon on the Mount. Your repentance is not genuine. Therefore, you were never and I was sitting there listening to these sermons going, how could anybody in that church sit there and go, I mean, everybody in the church should be like, well, then nobody is saved, including the one preaching. Because the Sermon on the Mount says, be ye perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect, which would exclude everyone. So how could you preach that? Like, what, what kind of twisted logic is that? But what is he trying to do? Repentance has to be what? Demonstrated. But I want you to understand the... the how does that work? I mean, you tell the teenagers, like, you, you want Jesus, you've got to repent. Well, if that means a change of action, you would almost have to demand they would have, before they come to Jesus, they would have to demonstrate what? That they really have left the sin. Well, how many sins do they have to leave behind? How many sins? I mean, I bet you they have a lot. 
Right? Right? I bet you they have a whole bunch of sins. So which ones do I pick? Typically, we pick the ones that we don't like, right? Because we don't want to pick the ones that we do. I mean, come on, that would make us look foolish, right? We've got to pick the ones that only they do. But see, that even, but what good is that? Because for every one that I can name, there's going to be what? More. So then, is your repentance... So then people play this game. Well, I mean, it's not that you're going to be perfect. Well, look, to repent, if it means to turn from, it's either you've turned from it or you haven't. But what, so what, what, when I give repentance to them, what am I asking them to do? If I look at it from what I believe is the correct way, I'm just wanting them to change their minds about what? That they acknowledge it's a sin. They acknowledge that God is, is holy. They, they're just acknowledging those facts. But in most cases, repentance is like, you've got to do something. In fact, what, not only that, if you make repentance something... Now, some will say repentance is something God does, but you see how, more, how this becomes very complicated? Because if God is the one who grants me repentance, or repentance is a change from action, then how good should my repentance be? What? That can't be. Because, especially in the Reformed world, we, re- we, we believe that we can't repent, so God has to grant us repentance. Well, if God is the one granting repentance, and repentance is a change of action, then since God is the one who granted their repentance, by definition, it would be what kind of repentance? Meaning you would never go back to your... All right, well, clearly that doesn't work. Amen? And for anyone who believes that they're the ones who do repenting, or in an Arminian or Pelagian view, right? That, well, then, you know your repentance is not very good because what do you continue to do? Sin. I mean, how long have you... Some of you have been Christians for a long time. How, how often do you continue to sin? Every day. Well, then that would prove what about your repentance? It's not a complete turn. Right, you can't say repentance is a turn away, but it's not a complete turn. What kind of weirdness is that? Now, why, why can you say? I would hope that everyone here who claims to be a Christian this morning can honestly say... I don't think the way I used to think. There was a, cha- a dramatic change in your thinking, was there not? I may commit a sin, but I know that it is a sin. The dangerous part, if you become a Christian and you still don't think that it's a sin, or you still, you're still thinking in an incorrect way, that's the scary part. So this statement is, let's go back through this, the sinner is to come to Jesus just as he is. Now, the only thing we would say, the sinner is to come just as he is in practice, but he should come with a change of mind. We would at least add that. Meaning, you come to Jesus just, I mean, you just got to come with all of, your, all of your problems, right? All of your baggage, all of your sin. You've got to bring it all. And some people say, no, you've got to forsake it. Well, are you ever going to truly forsake your sin? No. I, I know it preaches good. I know it sounds good. But the, re, but the reality is nobody. Everyone's still carrying the same sins. You know why you can't get rid of your sins? 
Okay. Well, the, 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 I think the main thing is, is we know that you can repent 50,000 times. And guess what is always going to get, come with you after you've done repenting? The same nature that, that produces the sin. Repenting doesn't change the sinful nature. The sinful nature remains. Now, many Christians believe the sinful nature is basically eradicated. But if the sinful nature is eradicated, what should be the natural result? Perfection. And guess what? We can't be perfect. Repentance does not get rid of the nature. Where does, sin, where does your sin come from? Your nature. I want to make sure we got this down. Where does your sin come from? Your nature. It doesn't. I know we love, Christians love to blame the externals, do we not? We love to blame everything else. It's that, it's that, it's that, it's that. We like to blame other people's kids for our kids' sins. When it's probably your kids who is leading them to sin. But the bottom line is, guess who was sin? Why, where the sin was coming in both kids? The cause coming from inside the house. I use that illustration all the time. Right? From, from an old horror movie. Okay, But the cause, it's, it's inside of you. So guess what? You, when you come to Christ, guess what you're bringing? That nature. And guess what that nature feels about God sometimes? It hates God. You can say all day long, oh, I love God, I love Jesus, I love... But deep inside of you, there's a large part. Guess what, what you love? Yourself. Very good. So it's yourself. And how much do we love self? More than anyone. Remember what I always say? What is, what is true of us by nature? Now, I know I'm getting ready to, to scare a lot of people, but I just realized I have it here, so I'm going to do this, right? Okay? By nature, guess what we are? We're Satanists. Right? Satanism, I'm holding the Satanic Bible in my hand. Satanism is the worship of what? Self. Satanism is not the worship of the devil. When Christians say that nonsense, it drives me crazy, right? Satanism, especially the Anton LaVey, the one who wrote the Satanic Bible, there's his picture, he made it very clear that Satan simply is a symbol of what? Self. Self. Just, just quickly, just here, the nine, the nine statements of a Satanist, all right? These are the nine Satanic statements. If you're going to become a member of the Church of Satan, here's like their confession of faith. Everybody ready? Number one, Satan represents indulgence instead of abstinence. Oh, come on. Can we all say amen to that one? Oh, come on. Come on. Everybody's like, yeah, I, I want... I, I mean, I, I, as soon as I read that, I'm like, I'm thinking about joining that church today. I'm like, I'll be a pastor on Sunday and a Satanist on Monday. But guess what? All of you are Satanists just as much because we all know that we all desire what? Indulgence over abstinence. Come on, to everything, yes? Everything. Who wants to abstain? We all want to indulge. And what do we want to indulge in? What pleases us. Number two, Satan represents vital existence instead of spiritual pipe dreams. Well, come on. As much as we want to talk about heaven and God and all the spiritual, where do we tend to put our focus and we, and we tend to be moved and, and motivated by? 
what we can touch and see, feel. That's what we are driven by. That's what motivates us. Number three, Satan represents undefiled wisdom instead of hypocritical self-deceit. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, because he believes it's hypocritical self-deceit for us to walk around claiming that we love God and we love our neighbor and we say all these things when we know what the reality is of our hearts. You know the reality of your hearts. Right? That's why I love that quote by Luther so much. Love God? Love God? Sometimes I hate him. Now, you're not allowed to say that in church, are you? But why would he say that? Because sometimes it's true. Satan represents kindness to those who deserve it instead of love wasted on ingrates. Oh, come on. We know we like that one, don't we? Come on. Some of you were like, whoa, that, I wrote that. It's on my refrigerator. I say it to my kids every day. Oh, come on. Satan represents kindness to those who deserve it instead of love wasted on the ingrates. We come on, we know we do that. We always have, we, we, we like to love people as long as they love us. Do we like that love your enemy thing? Turn the other cheek? Resist not evil? We're like, no, I own three guns. Right? Satan represents vengeance instead of turning the other cheek. Oh, come on. We know we like that. Right? We try to water down that turning the other cheek to such a, a, a meaningless phrase that we, we don't know. We have a, if we could turn the other cheek, there probably wouldn't be fights in your house with your spouse or your kids. What happens as soon as your spouse says something you don't like? I turn the other cheek. Somebody doesn't. I mean, come on. Do you do, you, do, you do that? It's okay. I still love you. Everything's fine. What can I do for you today? Right? <laughs> Satan represents responsibility to the responsible instead of concern for psychic vampires. Basically, anyone who's just taking from you, I'm not going to do anything for you. Here we go. This one is a good one. Satan represents man as just another animal, sometimes better, more often worse than those that walk on all fours, who because of their divine, spiritual, and intellectual development has become the most vicious animal of all. That really describes human beings very well, does it not? Look at some of the horrific things that have happened in the name of Christ inside the church. Yes? People have been murdered and killed in the name of Jesus. Now listen to this one. Are we all going to say amen to this one? Satan represents all of those so-called sins as they all lead to physical, mental, or emotional gratification. And we all know that those sins lead to physical, mental, and emotional gratification in some way, shape, or form. That may not last. That'll be the next hour. But we all know that. And then... The last one, Satan has been the best friend that the church has ever had as he has kept it in business all these years. Now, just remember, whenever people talk about Satanism, 
Satanism is simply the worship of self, and Satan is simply a symbol. It's just a symbol of it. So they use religious imagery to scare Christians to death. And we're like, what are they doing? They're going to sacrifice somebody. And it's just all symbolism to represent the worship of self. Satan is simply a self. And what's the most important holiday for a Satanist? Your own birthday. Because why? I mean, what better holy day than to worship yourself, right? Right? I mean, everybody's like, Halloween is the satanic holiday. Birthday is the most important holiday for a Satanist because it's the worship of self. Well, who should you glorify? Who should you gratify than yourself? That's who we are. And guess when we come to Christ, that's what we must bring. And guess what? Even after we come to Christ, as much as we want to talk about repentance, as much as we want to talk about leaving and forsaking and doing all of this stuff, as much as we want to say that's the way it should be, guess what we still are sitting in this pew today? Very similar to that. And we all know that. In fact, it hit probably a little close to home. In fact, that probably sounds far more like you than a lot of things in the Bible. Yes? Now, in your mind, you know all of the things that were said in the Satanic Bible was wrong, right? You know it's wrong. But why is that still so much a part of us? It's in our nature. And guess when, when are we going to get rid of our nature? Glorification. In the meantime, that nature stays with us. So guess what? We have to come to Christ, Christ acknowledging that that's the way it is. We have to be honest that this is who we are. And that's what they want us to, we have to come with that. I do believe we have to come with a change of mind. It says, uh, even when he has a knowledge, there is nothing but hatred for God in his heart. In other words, we have to be willing to acknowledge even when things are not, when when we don't love God, when we resist God, we've got to be willing to acknowledge that. The church is, is almost like within Christianity, salvation within the church, not, not true salvation, but salvation in the way the church acts is really nothing more than putting on a disguise. You come to Christ and you put on a disguise, and what are we supposed to do? Pretend that we're something that everyone around them knows we're not. And 2,000 years of church history has clearly demonstrated over and over and over that we're still what? Sinners. And he knows of no refuge to which he may flee for salvation. A genuine preacher of the gospel will show such a person how easy his salvation is. Knowing himself is lost and a condemned sinner and unable to find the help that he is seeking, he must come to Jesus with his evil heart and his hatred of God and and God's law and Jesus will receive him as he is. A lot of people don't like to believe that he will receive him as he is. Most say Jesus will receive us if we are willing to no longer be what we are. But the problem is we're always going to be what we are because our nature is there. And so therefore that nature will always produce what? Sin. So therefore what will always be a part of our life? Sin. Jesus receives sinners. He is not to become a different being. He's not to become purified. He's not to amend his conduct before coming to Jesus. He who alone is able to make him a better man is Jesus, and Jesus will do it for him if he will only believe. Now, they're going to try to talk about all the changes that will occur, 
right? But whatever change occurs, it occurs, first of all, we have to make this very clear. Whatever change occurs, occurs when? It's going to occur after salvation. And what would be the motivating factor for change? A change of mind that changes our thinking, right? Which, when you change your thinking, that does have some impact, right? Okay. And our love for what Christ has done for us. That should motivate us. But no matter how much it motivates us, no matter how much it drives us, what do we know is still going to be true? We're still going to sin, all right? How much time do we have? We've got a couple of minutes. All right. Look at Romans 3.20. Well, let's look at Romans 3.20 and Romans 5.20 really quick. There's two scriptures. We'll at least get to these really quick. I got a whole bunch of others, but here we go. 3.20 and 5.20. And what does Romans 3.20 say? Okay, I hear you are reading it. Okay. I'll read it for everyone online who currently don't have a Bible in their hands. Romans 3.20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So, According to this, and in fact, I'm going to read it as the book says, the law produces what? Knowledge of what? Sin. The law produces not love, but the knowledge of sin. A person can indeed possess the knowledge without the love of God. The law will only do what? Show you your sin. Show you your sin. It's not going to produce the love. Does that make sense? So the law shows us our sin, and then once we have that sin, what are we to run to? Think of it this way. They're they're claiming that we're to run to Christ with what? With our sin. Others preach the law shows you your sin, and then what must you do before you come to Jesus? Drop it off, forsake it, turn from it, then you can come to Jesus. But we have to come to Jesus with our sin, Because guess what? If we don't come to Jesus with our sin, we're never coming because we always are going to have sin. So if you try to make repentance forsaking it, you'll never come to Jesus. True? I hope everyone agrees that. Romans 5.20, what does it say? Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And then so right there. So uh, they, uh, let's see what they want to do with this one, all right? M- they say this. Many sins are slumbering in a person who is still ignorant of the law. Let the uh, law be preached to such a person forcefully. Let it strike his conscience with lightning force. And that person will not become any better, but will actually become worse. Preaching the law doesn't make you better. It actually makes you worse because it actually does what? It, 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 it actually provokes, it actually rises up more sin. It's weird how Christians, look, many Christians think the solution to all the problems in the world is God's law. 
Hey, we can fix the world if we can just enforce God's laws, but you will not fix the world by enforcing God's law, spiritually speaking. Oh, you can pass laws and punish people for breaking said law, but you're not going to fix anyone spiritually. And how do I know this? Well, there was this group of people. There was like a whole bunch of them. And they used to be in bondage and they came out of bondage and they started following Moses. And they had law and they had sacrifices and they had a place of worship and they had priests and they had God's actual presence and they had miracles. and And guess what they did over and over and over and over and over and over again? Sins and, and remember what their first thoughts were when that we were given the law? They literally claimed, we will obey it. And how long did it take? Maybe hours? And they were doing what? You know, taking off their clothes and running around a golden calf. Okay. Why? And then once they got the law, I mean, they, they, they broke the law over and over and over and over and over and over. And what, what was the entire history of Israel? Law-breaking. What was the entire history of 2,000 years of church history? Law-breaking. Come on. I mean, when you open up your, when you open up your New Testaments, right? You, you, you get Acts, you may get a sense like, ooh, some things are going good. And immediately when you get to kind of the epistles, what do you find? Every letter written to a church is because the church is in a complete, utter mess. Disarray, disarray, sin, 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 sin. sin. You get to Revelation and the, and the message to the seven churches. Those messages to the seven churches. All those churches are a mess. And then you, you leave the New Testament, you start reading the church fathers. Guess what happens to all the churches? They're in a mess. And you go throughout church history. They're in a mess. And then the Roman Catholic Church is in a mess. So there's the Protestant Reformation. Oh, we're going to fix it. What happened to all those Protestant churches? They're a mess. And guess what the, the situation with the church today? They're a mess. And guess what's the problem with all of us? We're a mess. Because guess what doesn't fix it? All the law in the world will not fix it. Amen? All right, I'll just read this. Um, Not only when you preach the law, not only will the person not become better, he'll become worse. He begins to rear up against God and say, what am I to be damned? I know that I'm an enemy of God, but that is not my fault. I cannot help it. That is the effect of the preaching of the law. It drives men to desperation. Blessed the person who has been brought to this point he is taking a great step for, for, on his way to salvation. Such a person will receive the gospel with joy, while another who has never passed through the experience of this kind yawns when he hears the gospel preached and says, Oh, that, that is an easy way to get to heaven. Only a poor sinner on the brink of despair realizes what a message of joy the gospel is and will joyfully receive it. The point is, you have to be given that law, so you feel that rebellion, you feel your your hatred of God, you feel, and you realize how messed up you are, then the gospel can be preached. That's why sometimes it's very, it's very difficult sometimes that, that people either they don't understand their need of the gospel or they misunderstand the gospel for law. So I think what happens personally, and, and this is just, I have no scientific evidence to back this up, but I think this is what happens in the minds of many 
young people who are raised in the church. Young people who are raised in the church, I think many times misconstrue the gospel for law. And so when you try to preach the gospel to them, they're kind of like, whatever, right? Because if they lived in a strict Christian home, there's about a million things they haven't been able to do wrong. Right? There's a million things they haven't been able to do wrong. So when I try to preach the gospel to them, they're like, well, I'm better than, I mean, I mean, I'm good, right? I mean, I don't do this, and I don't do this, and I don't do this, and I don't do this. I mean, right? I mean, if if you would have taken the the Dantzler children when they were young, I mean, they probably would have been like, what's the worst thing they ever did? I mean, I mean, I mean, what did they do? You know, didn't make me oatmeal cookies. I mean, like, I mean, like, what? I mean, what was what was their a major? What was their major crime? It's like you know, Mister Robertson's neighborhood there. I mean, what in the world was that going on over there, right? It's like you know, compared compared to other kids, like compared to my kids, or like man, those Hammett kids are really messed up. So if I offer them the gospel, they're like, why do I need the gospel? Your kids need the gospel. And have you seen the Pierce kids? They, they desperately need the gospel. So it probably would have been hard for them to hear the gospel. They're like, I, we, we, we're, we're good. We're the good kids. Right? And so, and so sometimes for them, you try to give them the law, and they're kind of looking at you like, they're kind of like the rich young ruler, right? I've done all of this since I was little. And you're like, okay, well. Okay, well, once you realize you're not so good, then maybe I can preach the gospel to you. At that point, I can't really offer the gospel to them. Because, I mean, what is the gospel to them? Where, when, by the time I, when I was a teenager and I heard the gospel, there was no question. Like, I'm like, yeah, yeah, you don't even know half of my sins, okay? Like, I, no one had to tell me anything. Like, when I heard that I could be forgiven for my sins, I was like, wait, what? I didn't even know that was possible. I'm still waiting if the Statue of Limitations are over. Like, I was, like, what is happening here? Right? That's different. Because I knew, like, I knew that I didn't, I wanted to do my own, I, I knew it. Now, after I accepted the gospel, guess what I still discovered? I was still a sinner. Because I kept sinning. Which, that was hard for me to comprehend how that worked, Right? Because I thought I was supposed to, once you become a Christian, you can, dun, 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 da I have superpower, now I can do it, but I kept falling into sin. So that was my struggle. But I, no one had to convince me of me being a sinner. That was like, really? Yeah, okay. Oh, yeah, all you church kids, you're such sinners. Get out of my way, right? Like, I, did, I couldn't understand the church kids. Like, and the church kids were like, well, it's the big deal. Whatever, Bible, Jesus, yeah, so what? Right? The other, they didn't even care because they didn't understand how much they needed it. It's hard to convince a kid that you need the gospel when the worst thing they've ever done was, you know, eat the last cookie. Like, you know, like, like oh, what did I do wrong? And you're like, no, you need the gospel. No, no, take it to someone else. I'm not sick. Right? If I, if I brought a vaccine up here and say, you need this vaccine, most likely you're going to be like, I don't need the vaccine because I'm not sick. Now, if you're, <gasps> then you're like, give me, the, give me the medicine. Right? Well, when you know you're a sinner and you feel the weight of the law, guess what you'll want? 
the gospel, and guess how, what your reaction will be to it? Overwhelming joy. Now, that, that's, that makes it difficult in raising Christian kids, isn't it? Because you almost want to be like, well, see, what do I got to do here? See, I know what I'll do. I'll just let them go sin for a long time, and then I can sh- give them the God. It, it, that's not good, because you don't want them to destroy their lives. So it's hard to find that balance, right? But the problem is, is we all need to realize when we come to Christ, we come as we are bringing all of it. Now, we'll have to stop right there. I have to stop right there. And lots of concepts there, but we're just throwing them out there. We'll work through them. Okay. Because you're probably like, well, what about this and what about this? We'll get to all the whatabouts. Right now, we're trying to establish the basic concepts. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this morning. Lord, the one thing we do know is when we come to you, the only thing we can bring is our sin. And we do know that even after we come to you, we will continue to sin. So if it's not for your mercy and grace, there is no hope for us in the past, in the present, or in the future. And we're thankful for the perfect righteousness of your son given to us by faith. And we ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said...